place in the Word of God today. You know, we've been going through the book of Psalms. Uh, Pastor Mark, you've been setting such a great tone how to approach the Psalms. I've been learning so much, and I'm really grateful, Mark. Thank you for this opportunity you've given me to be with you this weekend. Uh, by way of introduction to our psalm, I want to talk about music just, just for a minute. Music has two different languages. It speaks to us two different ways. One is nonverbal. It's the, it's the language that the instruments make. It's the sounds the instrument makes. You know, you hear that melody, you hear that piano, you hear that string line, and you feel the music talking to you without words. It can change your mood. It can trigger a memory. The other language of music, of course, is verbal. It's the lyrics. It's the words. It's the message of the song. Our psalm today is Psalm 19, and it's going to show us that God also speaks to us in two languages. One of God's languages is nonverbal. He speaks to us through the world he created. And the other language, of course, is verbal. He speaks to us through the word that he has given us. Psalm 19 was written by David for the choir director to sing of the works of God and the word of God. The works of God and the word of God sing together in perfect harmony. And at the end of this psalm, we are going to find one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible. This is like Christmas morning where each verse is just like another gift we're going to open. It's, it's going to be wonderful. So let's pray first, and then we'll read Psalm 19 together. Dear Father, thank you for music. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the world, this beautiful world, right out our window that you have given us. But now, Lord, we'd like to put those things aside so we can just focus on what you would want to teach us. Lord, Psalm 19 is so deep. It is so rich. It is way beyond the means of any person to teach. So we ask your Holy Spirit, as we always do when we open your word, please reveal yourself to us, Lord. I pray, don't let anyone leave here the same as they came in. We thank you now for what you're going to do in our lives through Psalm 19. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's read Psalm 19. And it's good. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. He rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, 
In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall not, and then I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amazing passage. The theme of Psalm 19 is this. The theme is God's revelation of himself in the world, in creation, in his word, our Bibles, and also in the human heart. Psalm 19 was C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm. As C.S. Lewis said, I take Psalm 19 to be the greatest poem in the Psalms and the greatest lyric in the world. I totally agree. You'll see. Totally agree. The first six verses sing of God's revelation of himself in the world. Look at verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Right on the downbeat, David directs our attention up. Look up. Look up into the sky. Look into the heavens. Look at the universe. It's the greatest show on earth. The universe is proof positive that God is in absolute control over everything. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, if the stars came out only once every thousand years, we'd all stay up all night long just to look at them in awe and wonder. We need to understand right from the start that the song, this song, Psalm 19, was not written to be a top 40 hit. It never was intended to be popular with the masses. Too many people in David's day and certainly in ours would not agree with what we just read in Psalm 19. When they look upward, they don't see the hand of God. They just see the laws of nature, just science. So Psalm 19 was not written to be popular with everyone. It was written to stir the hearts only for those who love the Lord. I can't even begin to describe how this psalm has stirred my heart as I've studied it more deeply than I ever expected. The heavens are telling us of the glory of God. The name that David uses here for God is El. It's the Hebrew word El, meaning the mighty one. The heavens are always telling us about the mighty one. How long has that been going on? How long have the heavens been talking to us? We get the answer from Paul in Romans 1.20. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood what, from, from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So from day one, Day one, God's glory has been on display in the biggest arena known to mankind, the universe. We can't miss it. That's why we're without excuse. We have an advantage, you and I. We have an advantage in our day and age that David and Paul did not have in their day and age. Let me put, can I have that slide please, Jason? Do you know what this is? Recognize that? Hubble? Hubble Telescope. Hubble telescope was launched by NASA in 1990. It's about the size of a large school bus. It orbits our planet at five miles per second. 
That's like traveling, driving a car across America in 10 minutes. Okay? Can I have the next slide, please, Jason? This is just one of the countless photos we've gotten from Hubble. Hubble orbits above the distortion of the Earth's atmosphere. So it gets incredibly sharp, high-resolution images that we could never have before. It has shown us planets and galaxies. Hubble has captured stars being born and stars dying. Hubble has found galaxies that measure trillions of miles away. And you know what Hubble has proven? So great. It's proven the heavens are more beautiful than anyone ever imagined. That's God's glory on display. It's proven the universe can't even be measured. We can't find the boundaries of it because it's continually expanding. It goes on forever. God's eternal power. And all those countless heavenly bodies, they move with such precision that it boggles our best scientific brains and our computer technology. That's God's divine nature. The heavens are telling of the glory of the Mighty One. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The expanse means the size of the heavens. The, the area that the heavens cover is telling us about the work of God's hands. The heavens go on forever. So, the next time you pray and you put yourself or you put your prayers into God's hands, think about how mighty those hands are. The phrase work of his hands is teaching us about God's intentions. It's telling us that everything in the universe, visible and invisible, is there because God put it there. Nothing, nothing happens by accident. That includes you and me. And the ongoing precision of our universe shows that God is still actively involved in his creation and in our lives. Okay, I'd love to stay on verse 1, but we're going to move on. We have other places to go today. Verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The heavens speak to us day and night. Day and night are our constant companions. Remember the song that Annie sang in the Annie musical, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow? Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there will be sun. No weather person begins the forecast by saying, uh, if the sun rises tomorrow, we're going to have a high of 80 degrees. And if evening comes, they're going to have a low of 60. No, no, no. The, the day and night always show up. They're a given for us. Let's remind ourselves of how all this began. Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there has been evening, and there has been morning every day since prove God's power, his faithfulness, and his sovereignty, total control. Verse 3 might be puzzling at first read. Look at verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words, and their voice is not heard. Now verse 2 just told us, day to day pours forth speech. 
Now, verse 3 says, there's no speech, no words, and no voice. <coughs> Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. It's a clarification. It's telling us how the heavens speak. The language of the heavens is nonverbal. It's like we have the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. It doesn't mean the picture is going to chatter at us. It means the picture can tell a story without using words at all. Likewise, the heavens can tell us about God without using words. The language of the heavens is visual. But here's the problem with the language of just the heavens. We can't look into the heavens and understand that our sin separates us from our Creator. We can't know that we need the, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's why besides just the world, the Lord also speaks to us in His Word. We're going to get to His Word when we get to verse 7 in about two more hours. Verse 4, Their line, or the voice of the heavens, has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. God's revelation, He's being so kind to us. He's not putting it in small letters. The Lord isn't writing it in fine print that's easy to miss. He's engraving his message of himself across the entire sky that you can see day or night from any place on the planet. He's letting us know. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, second part of 4, moving into 6. In them, in the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You want to use your imaginations for a moment? I did. Can you picture David writing this psalm at sunlight, at sunrise? Maybe looking out his window at the first light of day, seeing daybreak over the Mount of Olives, and then that golden color starts to illuminate the city of Jerusalem, starting in the high places first and then washing that warmth over the coolness of the city until the whole city is warm. You can just see him writing as he's watching that. David compared the brightness of the sun to a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, coming out of his house, as fine as he can be. And he compared the sun also to a strong man or a champion, eager to run because he knows he cannot fail. And God set the course for the sun. And as it appears to our eyes, the sun starts at one point and travels all the way to the other point and then comes back to repeat that day after day after day. David is marveling at how the heavens run like clockwork. All of creation, all of creation obeys God's laws except for the human race. But it's not enough for us just to know the God of creation, to marvel at his wisdom and power. It's not enough to know God the creator. We must know God as our savior. That's why he gave us his word. And starting in verse 7, Psalm 19 now sings about the revelation of God in, of himself in his word. And Psalm 19 teaches us a really valuable lesson about how we should read our Bibles. We should never come to God's word carelessly. Look at how David approaches the, the Lord with such awe and wonder. It changes everything when we read this word and we remember who's talking to us. You know who's talking to us? It's not the New American Standard. Or it's not the NIV. It's certainly not the pastor talking to you. It's not your teacher. When you're reading the word, you are listening to the heart of God, the creator of everything. 
When you read his word like that, it changes how you read each and every word. It's hard to skip over when you understand who's talking to you. In the first six verses of this psalm, David used the name El for God, the Mighty One. Starting in verse 7, for the rest of the psalm, he changes God's name to Jehovah, the Lord. This is God's personal name, and it means he is here with us as our Lord and our Savior. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This is singing of the integrity of God's word. It says we can absolutely trust everything God says. And the testimony of the Lord is sure. What is the testimony of the Lord? What does that mean? His testimony is sure. What is the testimony of the Lord? We find out in 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. I'll read it to you. It says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings. In other words, you have known the testimony of the Lord. Which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The sure testimony of the Lord gives us wisdom. It opens our eyes so we can be sure to see our need for Jesus Christ. The Bible is the most practical book you and I can ever read. Because when we read our Bibles, it it teaches us, it corrects us, it trains us, it guides us to do everything God has called us to do and be everything he has created us to be. In Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In this inky maze of life. God's given us a lamp that illuminates the right path for us to go every step of the way. If you're like me, though, maybe sometimes you think, I don't know if I need God's lamp today. I know where I'm going. I even know a shortcut. We have to understand, when we choose our way, Instead of God's perfect way, there are some things that are going to occur. We need to understand what those are. Walking in the light of God's word, we have sure footing. When we walk without his light, we're going to stumble in the dark. In the light, we turn when God wants us to turn, as we're following his path. In the dark, we may go left when we should have gone right. We may go forward when we should have gone back. We may run ahead when we should have just stopped and waited. In other words, in the dark, we're going to pile up regret. Walking in the light of God's word leads to great rewards in life, and eternal life in Christ. Walking in the dark leads to a dead end. And in the light, we become more than we ever hoped we could be. In the dark... We end up places we never should have gone. And we become what we never wanted to be. If you feel like you've been wandering in the dark, you don't have to stay there. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. Restore means to revive, to give new life. 
The Word of God will revive you. It'll lead you from darkness to light. It'll lead you from error to truth. It'll lead you from sin to righteousness and from death to life. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Simple doesn't mean simple-minded, and it doesn't mean lower class. Simple means humble and teachable. Pride, pride stunts our growth. But when we have a humble and teachable attitude, we will thrive under the wisdom of the Lord. We need to understand, though, the wisdom of the Lord is quite different from conventional wisdom, from the wisdom of this age, from our society. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.18, a good verse to know. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Do not deceive yourself. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. In other words, the ways of this age are foolishness to God. And the ways of God are foolishness to this age. We have a clear choice. It's, it's black and white. Do we want to be wise in the eyes of the Lord? Or do we want to be wise in the eyes of the world? Is the Lord our go-to resource for truth and wisdom? Or do we seek out popular opinion? Before we read verse 8, let me ask you another question. Have you ever struggled with a decision, wondering what is the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. If you've ever wrestled with a decision, gosh, should I do this? Should I do that? And then you found the answer in God's word, or you read it, or a piece of scripture came to your mind, then you know exactly what this passage is saying. Our hearts rejoice when our eyes are open and the Lord shows us the right way to go. Don't you want to be right? It's so painful when we're wrong. The Lord's precepts means that precepts are his rules, his laws, his principles. They are right. And they are pure, means they're flawless. Okay, what if we don't like some of God's rules? What if we don't like one or two of those laws? I'm sorry if what I'm about to say is harsh, but I need to say it. It doesn't matter what you and I like. We need to get over ourselves. What if, what if I decided I don't like the law of gravity? I just don't think it's fair. So I go to the top of an 80-story building and I think, I'm a good person. I believe I'm going to fall, but I will not hit the ground. So I jump off that 80-story building. Halfway down, I'm falling. I pass the 40th floor and I say, hey, so far, so good. Pretty soon, though, whether I like the law of gravity or not, the law of gravity is going to serve me a cement sandwich. I'm going to hit the deck. The precepts of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, the laws of the Lord are right. Verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. You know what it means when we fear the Lord? When we fear the Lord, it means that we have decided that knowing who the Lord is is more important to us than anything else in our lives. Knowing who the Lord is. Now our society 
kind of goes nuts over anything they can find that will help them know themselves better. You know, find your inner child. Find your outer glow. Uh, Become fit, happy, rich. Have somebody fall in love with you with these five foolproof steps. Psalm 19 says we're much better off getting to know the Lord than we are getting to know ourselves. Because knowledge of Him leads to eternal life. And when we find the Lord, He makes us clean. He makes us a new creature in Christ. So, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 yeah, I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation. It says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And the fear of the Lord endures forever. I can't even begin to describe to you I would need hours today to tell you how much I've been thinking about that fact. The fear of the Lord endures forever. And I've been thinking about how much time and attention and energy I give to things that do not endure forever. And I've realized how much stress and distraction and discouragement I allow into my life because I'm treating temporary things as if they are as important as eternal things. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, all these temporary things will be given to you as well. I have not mastered this by any means, but I can tell you what a relief it has been and what a relief and joy and how peaceful it is to put the, the eternal things of the Lord first. So all this other temporary stuff that is clamoring for our attention all the time, we can deal with those things at the proper time in the proper way with a heavenly perspective. Makes all the difference in the world. Let's look at verse 9 one more time and then we'll, we'll move on. It says, the judgments of the Lord are true. When Jesus was on trial, do you remember the uh, question that Pilate asked Jesus? What is truth? Remember, Pilate very flippantly said, ah, what is truth? Well, same thing our society is asking. Relativism. Relativism is the contemporary philosophy that says all points of view are true and equally relevant, equally valid. What I think is true is true for me. What you think is true is true for you. Truth is now subjective. There's not anything such as objective truth. People all around us are adrift in these murky waters and they don't have a compass because they don't see a God, therefore they do not believe there's any such thing as a true course. Everybody just has to go find their own course. And these people are very vocal in our schools and in our workplaces and in the media. They scoff at anyone that would dare to say the Bible tells us what is true. So we have to remember something very important when you come across those kind of people and that kind of message. Please remember, things are true no matter what other people say. It doesn't matter how loud they are. It doesn't matter how passionate they are. It doesn't matter how learned they are. And it doesn't matter how many they are. People don't decide what's true. God does. And the majority isn't always right. In fact, the majority is seldom right. The majority of people do not believe that God will judge them when they die. And God's judgment will determine where they're going to spend their eternal destiny, either in heaven or hell. 
But that fact is true no matter what anyone believes. The judgments of the Lord are true. And look at verse 10. They, God's judgments, are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Fine gold is nice. We probably all wouldn't mind having more fine gold. But gold is only good as long as we're alive to spend it. After we're dead, the gold is of no value to us. The first century Roman philosopher Seneca said, money never made anyone rich. Money never made anyone rich. But the word of God makes us rich beyond our dreams because his word leads to eternal life where the streets are paved with gold. There's nothing sweeter and more valuable than his judgments, his word. Are you being challenged by Psalm 19? I mean, it's asking us some very tough questions. Do you, it's saying, do you really and truly, in your heart of hearts, are you glad to have God's instructions, his rules and his judgments? Do you welcome his authority over you? Do you really believe every word in here is true and more valuable than wealth? Really? These are life-changing questions, depending on how you answer. It's a big psalm. Let's look at verse 11 to see how kind our Lord is to us. And by the way, this is, please don't make a note of this because this is not inspired. This is just coming from my own imagination. But the more time I spend in this psalm, I think David's getting more and more excited at each, each verse. I think he can't wait to get to the next part of the song. And he's just, it's energy for me. feels like it's ramping up, ramping up. He gets to verse 11 and he says, moreover, like, wait, there's more. He says, by them, by God's rules, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. How wonderful that God clearly tells us what the rules are. And he clearly tells us what will happen if we disobey him and what great blessing there is when we do obey him. We never have to wander through life wondering, gee, I wonder what God thinks about this. I wonder if he takes our obedience seriously. He spelled it all out for us, black and white. He's told us in advance. So kind. After David praised God for his warnings in verse 11, we get to verse 12, where David's honesty and humility comes out so clearly. In verse 12, he confesses to all how often he falls short of obeying God's word. Verse 12, he says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. David came before the Lord and prayed. I don't know if you've ever prayed this. I have. Lord, I can't even keep track of my mistakes. Please acquit me of hidden faults. Hidden faults or secret faults are the sins we overlook. Or maybe there's the sins we don't even see in ourselves because we have a blind spot there. Or there might be sins that we do out of ignorance of God's word. Maybe we don't know a passage of God's word very well. Maybe we're a new believer and we didn't even know what we did was wrong. Acquit means to forgive, to not judge and punish. Does this mean that God will judge and punish us for sins we don't even know we committed? Yes. Yes, very much. But it also means that the Lord invites us to come to his throne of grace where the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin even the hidden ones. That's really good news. I'd like to put Psalm 32, 1 on the screen because David also wrote this psalm. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation, so it may look a little different in your Bibles. But I just love 
how David rejoiced at forgiveness. He says, what joy, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. I love that because of this, because of human nature. When we sin, we're probably all like this. We want to hide what we did wrong. We want to hide our sin. We want nobody to see it. We don't want to know about it. We don't want God to see it. We want to hide it. The Word of God tells us if you want to hide your sin, the very best thing in the world you can do, the most logical thing you can do is confess your sin to God because then He promises to hide it. He'll put it out of sight. And He hides things much better than we do. Okay, got to finish the psalm. Let's go back to Psalm 19, verse 13. It says, Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Wow. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So what are presumptuous sins? <laughs> well, they are not hidden sins. Presumptuous sins are not sins we do out of ignorance or we didn't know we committed. No, no, no. Presumptuous sins are when we know what is wrong and we do it anyway. It's willful disobedience. Look at the wonderful prayer of David. He said to the Lord, Lord, please Please don't let me be the kind of person that chooses to disobey you. Stop me from disobeying you by choice. Don't let my sins rule over me. When we choose, we have to understand this, when we choose to disobey God and a lightning bolt doesn't come down from the sky to hit us because it never does, we can think, I'm getting away with something. But we have to understand what Scripture is teaching. This is one of those kind warnings of God. We're not getting away with anything. We're becoming slaves to our own wrong choices. I know at first sin looks fun. Maybe it even looks harmless. We know it's wrong in God's eyes, but in our eyes, it's looking okay. So we dabble in it, or we jump right in. It doesn't matter. We believe we can control it, but pretty soon it ends up controlling us. Sin ends up owning us. Sin ends up ruling us. And it's impossible to keep willful sin, willful disobedience to just one little area of our life. You can't do it. It's always going to spread to other areas of your life. It's like an invasive cancer. All you have to do is read the testimonies or listen to a testimonies of, of believers who have fallen into gross sin and their story is always the same. They can take you right back and tell you how innocently the sin began with a choice and then how those choices progressed to other areas of their lives until sin just spread out of control. If you're prone to disobeying the Lord, like we all are, then we have to pray what David prayed. Lord, please keep me from being the kind of person that chooses to sin against you. Don't let me be that person. Please remove the temptations or give me your strength to overcome the temptations because I can't do this without you. This is not the kind of prayer we can pray one time and we're good to go for life. The prayer to avoid willful sin is a prayer we have to pray continually. We all need the Lord's grace and we need his power to help us overcome the temptation caused by our own sin nature and our own tendencies to willfully disobey him. And there's a wonderful truth to this verse. It doesn't matter how big our sin is because God is always bigger, always bigger. And through the blood of Christ, we can be acquitted, it says, of great transgression. That means great in size, and it means great in number. 
Having prayed that God would keep him from sinful actions, David now prays for God to take control of his words and his thought life. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Willful disobedience begins right here in our heart. When we start mulling something over in secret, and then those thoughts start dominating our thinking, and then when the opportunity comes, it turns into sinful action. David prayed that his words and his thoughts would be acceptable to the Lord. He wanted, he wanted everything he said and everything he thought to be pleasing, to be, have the Lord be delighted in those things. What if, what if this became the prayer of your life and my life? What if every day from now on, continually through our day, we constantly prayed to the Lord, Lord, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm about to say. Are you pleased? Do you, think that, do you think our conversations and our thought life would change? The word here, acceptable, is an interesting word because in the Hebrew it's the same word used when people used to bring their animal sacrifices to the Lord and sacrifice, make sacrifices for their sins that were acceptable. So David is saying, here I am, Lord. I'm not bringing an animal with me. I'm bringing myself. I'm putting myself on the altar. I want to give you everything I have, including the words that come out of my mouth and the thoughts I have in my head and the things I treasure in my heart. I want you to take it all. I want you to all be pleased with all of it. David calls the Lord his rock, his stronghold, his fortress, and his redeemer, his savior and deliverer. It's not enough for us just to see God in the heavens and to see God in his word. We must see God as our Lord and savior in our hearts. And on this soaring note, this wonderful song of David comes to an end. Wouldn't you love to hear how the choir sang that? Wouldn't you love to be hearing their voices ringing in the air right now? I think most of all for us, I just hope the words of Psalm 19 are ringing true in our hearts. I started the message by talking about music, so let me come full circle and ask you a question. Do you have a favorite song? you have a favorite song, it comes on the radio and you go, that's my song. you have one of those? How would your life change if you made Psalm 19 your song? What if Psalm 19 was your song? I'm convicted and I'm convinced that we can't just walk away from what we've read today without responding to it. We can't just go about our day. How do we ignore this call from God <laughs> to stand in awe of him? Creator, the Mighty One? How do we ignore His call to obey His Word eagerly and treasure it above all things? How can we not, like David, surrender everything we have to Him, including the words that we say and even our most private thoughts? Are you and I ready to have that kind of relationship with the Lord? Is there any other better way we could possibly live? Let's pray. Father, oh dear Lord, I pray, Father, we all, all of us, I pray, would want to have a Psalm 19 relationship with you. Mighty one, 
The heavens are telling us about you day and night. And your word is perfect and it is true. And it is more valuable than any earthly treasure. What else can we do now, dear Lord, than offer you everything we are, everything we say, and everything we think? Please, Father, make us acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.